And Father, truly we are here to praise you. We're here to praise you in song and Lord, just praise you because of your word. And once again, fathers, we look at the great things that you have done, that you are doing and that you will do. I pray, Father, that it would cause us to truly sing a new song, to have a fresh awareness, Lord, of your goodness in our life. And so, Father, once again, just bless us, speak to us and instruct as we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? What did? Uh, it sounded good up there uh, just before I came up. You kind of, I don't know if you just hit that cord or something. I don't know. <laughs> good evening. Go ahead, turn to Isaiah chapter 65. We are in the second to the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. We've been here for about a year and a half. Um, my plan is is to finish up next week, and then we're going to take a little time away from our verse-by-verse study. We're going to be going back through the series of how to share our faith, Way of the Master. I believe it's a six-week course. I'm doing that because I want to take some time off on Sunday evenings. Not that I'm not going to be here on Sunday evenings, I am, but preparing a Bible study because I'm planning to start writing devotions on the Old Testament. And I need to get a good head start on that so that I'm not having to write a devotion for the next day. It gets to be a a little bit much that way. And so I'm going to try and get like a two-month head start. And we are moving into Christmas as well. And uh, on Old Testament devotions. And when we finish the year and when we have the Old Testament done, we'll have the whole Bible done in devotions. So we can just run right on through uh, from there. Although we... I have to go through Proverbs. haven't done Proverbs yet. But nonetheless, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're in Isaiah chapter 65. I'm just going to read the first two verses, and then we'll get into our study. God speaking through the prophet. I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word. And Lord, your word is to be that truth within our lives that is the cornerstone, Father, of our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would embrace the things that you have to say to us tonight, meeting each person here where they are at in a very personal way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. In the last three chapters of the book of Isaiah are the conclusion of all that the prophet-slash-court historian has told us. Isaiah, definitely a prophet, and what we have seen in our study, he was also the court historian. So not only was he there firsthand to see all the things that were going on and to write about them, but also how God met the various kings as well. We're looking at these last three chapters of the book under three progressive headings. Last week it was chapter 64, and we saw the need for a repentance. Chapter 65, tonight we'll look at a restoration, and then in chapter 66 we'll see a rejoicing. We've seen so much in this book. We've seen scarlet sins, we've seen disobedient people, raging nations, confused kings, and then for the last quite a few chapters, we've seen the looming last days. We've seen the last days as it relates 
to the born-again believer. We see the last day as it relates to the unbeliever. We've looked at the millennial age. We'll see little pictures of that. But all in all, we see how our God ministers to His people. In Psalm chapter 30, verse 11, it says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. There's two different perspectives that will see this, or that a person would see this chapter in. For the born-again believer, it's in joy. It's joy knowing the goodness of God. It's joy, as I spoke about this morning, to understand the magnitude of the grace of God to understand the good things that God has for us, not based upon who we are, but based upon who He is. And really what that does is it hits home the permanence of it, because as God doesn't change, these things don't change. But there's also the other perspective of the person who is not saved, because there is a definite warning here as well for those who are apart from God. Last week we saw the reality of repentance and we saw that it's really twofold in the born-again believer's life. First, there was the repentance that we, well, our repentance at the moment of salvation. Somebody was telling me, and I, I can't remember exactly what it was based upon last week's study, so what if I do this, what if I do that? And then he brought up a question that I hear on pastor's perspective every so often. Well, what about suicide? What does the Bible say about suicide? Well, the people that we see that have committed suicide in the Bible are, are far from, from, from God. The only unforgivable sin that we see in the Scriptures is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's to ignore the salvation message. Is suicide murder, self-murder? I've heard it described that way. The Bible says murderers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what about the murderer who does repent, gets right with Christ, and becomes born again? He's a murderer, but he's going to get into heaven. And so you've got to weigh all of these things out. And so I look at the need to repent because the person pointed out that suicide, there's no repenting from that because once you do it, you're gone. Well, the way I see it is, and what the Scriptures tell me, on the day of my salvation, what are you repenting of? I'm not going to go through the list of all the sins that I've committed up to that point. How could I possibly do that? And in the list that he was talking about concerning murderers not inheriting the kingdom of heaven, it also spoke of liars not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And to follow his line of reasoning of a person who commits suicide not repenting, what about the liar who doesn't quite get to the repentant part before he dies? Then really none of us have a surety of salvation But really what I am repenting of on the day of my salvation is my sinful nature. That, Lord, I'm a sinner. What did the tax collector say? Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus said that that man was right in his sight. He had a genuine repentance. So it's not going through all of the particular sins. It's asking forgiveness for who I am. Because it's then that God changes you into who he desires for you to be that's a real repentance and so there's the repentance at the moment of salvation but there's also the repentance of really every day of my walk jesus said in john 13 verse 10 when he was washing the disciples feet jesus said to peter after peter refusing to be washed he said he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean 
but not all of you, referring to Judas, but he says, he was bathed. You've already been bathed, Peter. You've already been washed clean of your sins. But what happens, especially in those days, for the most part, they were wear sandals. But as you're out on the road and you're walking, you're getting dusty. They used animals a lot. So what animals leave behind, there's that residue and all of that. And equating it to your Christian life, you get the world kind of, well, you get soiled by the world. You get soiled by the world and the flesh enters in. And so you don't need to be completely bathed again because Christ has done that. You're saved. You're going to be with him for eternity. But you do need that daily washing that you would not be unclean in the sight of the Lord, that we can be used by the Lord. And we saw even in Isaiah that our prayers would not be hindered, but our prayers would be heard. These things that are so necessary. So me and my Christian life, on the day that I was saved, I repented. I repented of my sinful nature, and I can look as that proverbial timeline of my life, and I can look at that, that point in time and say, that's the day that God did something different in my life because that's who I used to be, and this is who I am now. But as far as today, there's that continual need to repent because not a one of us is perfect. We saw that the repentance process requires three main things. There's so many, but this is what we saw from chapter 64. First, there's got to be, obviously, an acknowledgement of the existence of God. Secondly, again, should be obvious, there's got to be the acknowledgement that I'm a sinner. And then thirdly, there must be an acknowledgement, excuse me, of the grace of God. Because if you're not aware of the grace of God, you're not going to be repenting, you're going to be hiding. Because there's going to be that conviction that I have sinned in the sight of a holy God. Adam, it was too much for him to present himself. He was unaware of grace. Sin had yet to enter into the equation, so he didn't understand the concept of grace. And so he and his wife, they sinned, and they could not bear to face a holy God, so they were hidden in the trees with leaves stuck all over them. And so it's either going to be confessing or hiding. But the problem with hidden sin it's going to be revealed on the day that you stand before God. And all things, when we stand before God, we stand before God completely naked. And what I mean by naked is completely open to God. The totality of our lives. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter chapter 3, verse 19, every mouth will be stocked. You can lie to me, you can lie to yourself. You cannot lie before God. You can hide things from me. You can hide things from yourself, but you'll never be able to hide everything from the Lord. As I stand before the Lord, I want all of my sins to be dealt with, and the only way they can be dealt with is to be covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then I can boldly enter into the throne room of God, not based upon who I am or what I've done, but based upon who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. If I'm hiding sin, what's going to... See, if you go into the throne room of God on that great day when God calls you home, what's going to be on your mind? Praise you, Lord, for Jesus Christ and the cross. It's the only way that I've been able to go in here. What about if just one sin, let's just say there was one sin, one sin, you're a perfect person with the exception of that one sin. I sure hope that one sin isn't found out. And because of the terror of the Lord, we're told, we persuade men, it'll be absolute terror when that one sin is revealed because it only takes one sin to separate man from God for all of eternity. 
Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, For without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the way we diligently seek him in this particular context, we diligently seek him out through a real repentance. Now entering into chapter 65, we see God's response to man's repentance, a real restoration, and just interesting concepts, concepts of today, concepts speaking of our tomorrow, and even further than that. And so God is meeting us here in so many different levels. So in God's restoration, first we have a perspective on the past. Again, verses 1 and 2, and what you need to see is God and how he meets his people. He says, I was sought excuse me, by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. So we start out with this picture of the depravity man, but what overcomes that again is always the grace of God. And that in the reality of salvation, mankind, what we're seeing here is, does not pursue God, but it's God who seeks after man. And God was seeking to establish a holy people. Remember what we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 7, that God didn't place his love upon you because you were such a great people. You weren't such a numerous people. Matter of fact, this is at the beginning as he is seeking out Abraham. They were only a one person at that point. But God simply loves you, it says, because he loves you. And it was God pursuing Israel. Israel, that they were to come through Abraham, the father of many. They were to come through him. But God is pursuing him because he wants to display his love and his grace to the world. And he had chosen Israel to be a reflection of that. For us, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you, he made alive. You were dead in your sins and your trespasses, but you were made alive. How does being spiritually dead and have a choice, how do you rectify the two? I can't describe that in detail. People have been trying to do that for hundreds of years. You just need to be receptive of it. Because of the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But the fact of the matter was, I was dead. How did I become alive to the gospel? was through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he enabled me to make that decision. The Lord, the Lord sought out Abraham when he was in a foreign land. His father was an idolater. We're not told that Abraham was. If he wasn't, he was probably destined to be. And he was without the law. So it was all it was was Abraham, God, and the grace of God. There was nothing more than that, but there was nothing more needed than that. So God in his grace and mercy called Abraham out of his old life into a new one where he would become the father of all who would believe. Same thing he did in your life, same thing he has done in my life. Not to the same magnitude, but maybe, how do you know? Again, United States, not mentioned in the book of Revelation. How can you not mention the United States in the book of Revelation when we are such a prominent people? Well, for many years I've been taught it's because the United States, and it's going in that direction, has been morally reduced, and probably morally reduced to such a degree that God's hand of grace, or God's protection, if you will, has been taken from them, and we've been reduced to a third world country. We so seem to be on that path, and it definitely can be that, but just maybe, 
just maybe revival is going to enter into this land. Maybe it's going to start with me. Or maybe it's going to start with you. Maybe it's going to start with just the lone person, born-again believer, who teaches his kid. And then his kid shares his faith. And so on and so forth. And as it progresses and it spreads, and God does a great work, and there's just an amazing change in this nation, so that when the rapture comes, the United States, now I have no fantasies that everybody is going to be raptured, that everybody is going to be saved, but to such a degree that this country is reduced because so many people are raptured, so many people disappear in that final day. It's a possibility. I have to look at things as if that is the way it's going to be. I have to be proactive in my Christian faith as if God is waiting on me to achieve that work. We have to be of that mindset. Romans chapter 4, verse 13, For the promises that he would be heir, speaking of Abraham, of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Abraham Abraham had no law to keep. It wasn't given for hundreds of years. He just simply believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And just as it was with Abraham, so it is with us even today. We even have more information today, a greater understanding, but also we have a greater responsibility as well. Romans 10.20, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Isaiah speaking of Israel, but really Paul using that for the Gentiles as well. Gentile is just whoever is not a Jew. He's speaking to you. He was speaking to you. I was found by those who did not seek me. I wasn't seeking after God. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. God revealed himself to me, and it was through this Holy Spirit that I submitted myself to him. And just in case you were thinking that God was getting such a great prize, we have a picture of the people that he came for. Look at verses 3 through 7. Speaking of these people, actually start in the mid part of verse 2. Who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit amongst the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay into their bosoms. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. I'll give them their due, is what he is saying. And so we're talking about a real restoration, but in that restoration, we're getting a reminder of the magnitude of two things, of what we need to repent of. God will forgive all of these things. And what God will do, again, the magnitude of his grace. When we are told that they sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, it speaks of pagan worship. And actually, a little bit more than that, it speaks of this being done on their rooftops. And the idea is for everybody to see, but that which the roof encompasses is the totality of the families. And we've got to understand this, making it real in our lives. Are we training up our children the way that they should go in the Lord? Or are we raising them up in the way that they ought not to go in the world? 
It's to make that determination, to make that, to make that decision, and to stand in the boldness of God in the midst of my family. If you can't stand boldly in the midst of your family, you're not going to be able to stand boldly outside of your house. So to the measure which God has given you, the ability that he, God has given you too, I've got to start in the home. It's got to start with my personal walk. It's got to start with me developing that biblical relationship with my spouse, if in fact there is one, if, you, if you're married, and, and developing that and seeing that foster to the best of your ability. I know sometimes there's situations where the spouse isn't open to it. And then I've got to pour these things into my children that my house would not be seen as pagan, but my house would be seen as holy. When he says sit amongst the graves, he's talking about communicating with the dead. Now, I always thought this would be very fascinating. What in the world would the dead have to say to the living? I mean, really. Uh, I guess they could send the message, you know, such as the rich man, tell my brothers that they don't end up here as well. But we so attach, you know, it's just this paganistic idea that the dead are these really wise people. Well, a lot of dead people are really stupid because they did stupid things to get dead. And so... Are we going to seek out the dead? Or are we going to seek out a God who lives? You have that opportunity. I mean, you're taking it to an extreme. Seeking out the dead or seeking out the living God. You've got that, that, that choice to be made. Eat swine's flesh and drink abominable things. It speaks of an uncleanliness of the inner person based upon the things that we consume. Now, using that example of what we eat and drink. We just had communion this morning. We ate and drank to holiness. This is something that God has commanded us to do. The things that he is talking about here are unclean things that are going to defile a person in the sight of God. And so I have to look at my life. I have to look at those whom God has given me stewardship over. What have I allowed? What am I allowing them to consume that is going to bring uncleanliness into their lives? I've got to consider it. I've got to take inventory of it. I did. You know, my kids are all gone now, but when they were in my house, if I saw something that I didn't quite appreciate, I'd destroy it. I'd get rid of it. I remember finding what I considered to be inappropriate music in my son's room or in my daughter's room. I'd take it and I'd trash it. And my son said, what happened to that CD that I had? I told him I threw it away. That was my friend Bobby's, you know, whoever his friend's name was. Well, then I thought, you better give Bobby however much money that CD costs, because if you bring it into my house, its life is in my hands, and I'm very ruthless when it comes to that. I saw, I told my daughters about, I didn't say anything, I just throw stuff away. But I saw, we'll just call it very inappropriate, what I determined to be inappropriate undergarments or, or cl pieces of clothing. And when I saw them, I would just throw them away. At times I'd even hear him yelling, where's my, and fill in the blank. And I'd just kind of chuckle to myself and go about my business. I wanted to foster a healthy home, spiritually speaking. And I've mentioned it before. There was a time, there was a period that God told my wife and myself that we needed to take the TV out of the house. And we did that. We took the TV out of our house. I don't remember. She could probably tell you eight to ten years, something like that. All of my kids became readers. They became readers because of that. Now, I, I have no fantasies that they never watched TV during that time. They'd go over to their friend's house and watch TV. But as much as it depended upon me, the things that were coming across weren't coming into my home. Now, just because I did that doesn't mean that you do that because eventually that became a stumbling block to me. 
Because when we got rid of TVs, most of us had like 18-inch TVs in our house, maybe a little bit bigger than that. Well, this was during the revolution of the big screen TV. And so I started evaluating people's spirituality based upon the size of their TV. And if you had a big screen TV, you were a bigger sinner than everybody else. And I started looking at myself being more holy because I didn't have a TV, and that wasn't right. It had gotten out of control at that point, and I needed to be brought back. But the desire of my heart before the Lord was to raise up godly children. I'm not saying, you know, go home and get rid of your TV. I'm just saying, look at the situation of your home, what is necessary for holiness. And then fourthly, he speaks of a holier-than-thou attitude. It speaks of self-righteousness. We see here, this morning we looked at uh, Romans chapter 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. People may think they are righteous, they may be self-righteous, but the thing about that is, who did Jesus speak the strongest words against while he was here? Those who had that self-righteous, pharisaical attitude. I have to understand, even as the pastor, and I've been given spiritual... um, stewardship over a group of God's people, I can never forget, I'm no better than you are. I'm no better than, I'm no more righteouser, righteouser, more righteous than you are. I've been saved by grace. God didn't look and say, Mike, I gotta have Mike. My, I need Mike. Just without Mike, just the kingdom of heaven is not gonna go on. He didn't say that. He took me despite myself because he wanted his grace displayed. And it's the same thing with all of us. We're all in this flock together. And it says, uh, verse 5, the last part, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. They're very much an irritant. Smoke in my nostrils. I was an electrician, and we were laying this PVC pipe. And it was, I don't remember, I think it was like two-inch PVC pipe. The trench was about 18 inches deep, and so I was in there, and I had this little turn that I needed to make and just needed to go a little bit, and I couldn't make the turn, so I decided to get a torch and to heat up the PVC pipe, and if you get it hot, it'll, you, can, you can bend it. And so I was down in that, my wife doesn't know about this, I was down there in, in that ditch, this was many years ago, and I'm heating up the PVC pipe. Well, I don't know what kind of smoke PVC produces, but PVC polyvinyl chlorine, I don't know if it produces that kind of gas, but man, that smoke, as it hit my nostrils, I almost went out. I mean, it, it just it, it just like it hit to the back of my brain. And so what God is saying, this is an, these people that are like this are an irritant. Far be it from us that we would be an irritant to the Lord. I want to bring joy to the Lord. As we've seen in many studies, specifically Nehemiah chapter 8, as I bring joy to the Lord, he strengthens me in this life. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. And it's really, such were all of you, but what he's saying here is some of you were this, some of you were that, and he's basically saying this is a cross-section of the church because at some point we were all under one of these headings. But he's saying such were some of you, but then he goes on to say, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, 
you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So you were washed, you were saved, and you were washed clean of those sins. You were sanctified. That just means you were separated from those people who are still living under those categories. And you were justified. Now you're looked at as if you've never done any of those things. It speaks of the magnitude of the grace that we have of God, of the salvation that we have received from Him. Secondly, then based upon a perspective of man's past, we have a promise of our future. Look at verses 8 through 10 first. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and as one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so I will do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. So he's saying, you've got this cluster of grapes. There's going to be good grapes and bad grapes. But this, this person who's speaking to him in this illustration is saying, be careful with that cluster, it's valuable. In it contains new wine, something that is desirous. And so with this list that he had just given in verses 2 through 7, you can just throw the whole thing away, but God knows that there's that which is to be desired in the midst of it. It's valuable servants will come from those people, those people who are so hard-hearted. Again, if we look at the cross-section of this church, we'll find ourselves under that list that I just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through 11. But it's those people God pulls out of that because He sees the value yet unformed in that and brings into His family. And so it doesn't matter what you were, just as long as you used to be that. Because as God has changed your perspective, as God has sanctified you and justified you, you now know that God works in your life and you should be seeking after holiness. And so what this, thus says the Lord, as new wine is found in the cluster, and as one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so I will do for my servant's sake that I may not destroy them all. Because again, there's value in it. Verse 9. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit, inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. We're in that. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob. Well, what are the descendants that came from Jacob? Are the 12 tribes, and so that speaks of all of Israel. But specifically, what came or who came from the line of Judah? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who came from the Lord Jesus Christ? You did. We're descendants of all of that. We're descendants of that good work that God started so way far back. These people, again, looking on the outside probably should have been destroyed. But God saw the value yet unformed in them. And so God continued to do his work. Came the time of Babylonian captivity that we've seen in quite a bit of detail in the book of Isaiah. God still saw the value. Instead of destroying him, he allowed them to go through those trials and tribulations, those hard times that they would turn back to the Lord. He released them, and then now we're in Malachi, and we're seeing how defiled the priesthood is. But never did Israel turn back to idolatry. And then you enter, well, you've got a period of about 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, but then we see the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the book of Acts, the beginning of the church, and all of this leads to your day. You were part of that cluster, part of that cluster that the Lord has gleaned from and that which God has made valuable for his glory. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Achor, a place for uh, herds to lie down, for my people have sought me. So this speaks of a future event, and really what he's talking about here, 
The valley of Sharon speaks of the west side of Israel. The valley of Achor speaks of the, the, the east side of Israel. So in actuality, he's speaking of the totality of Israel and the blessing that it's going to be. When it says, my herds to lie down, he's speaking of flocks of sheep. Sheep will only lie down unless they feel perfectly safe and perfectly content. He's speaking of a future event in the millennial age, and this is going to be a time when God's people, of which we will be part of that, that we will find peace and contentment in our relation, or because of our relationship with our Lord. Verses 11 through 12, But you, but you are those who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, the place that God has designated for worship, Jerusalem, who prepare a table for Gad. Gad is a pagan god of good luck and who furnishes a drink offering for Mini. Mini is a god of fate, a pagan god of, uh, of fate. Therefore, because you do this, I will number you for the sword and you shall all bow down to the slaughter because I called you and you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear but did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. So in that cluster of grapes, there are going to be some that are valuable, but there are also going to be those that are, if you will, the waste product. And really he's speaking of both. We saw it in verses 8 through 10 of that which is valuable in the sight of the Lord, but we also see that which will be cast off in verses 11 through 12. And so what is the point of evaluation here? Well, look at verse 12, kind of in the middle. Because when I called you, you did not answer. How has God called mankind? Through the gospel. Remember I mentioned a little bit earlier, only one unforgivable sin? That would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing? It's calling mankind through the body of Christ to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ as we preach the gospel. To ignore or to refuse, I guess I should say, to refuse the gospel is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Seems to be kind of a point of confusion in the church today. Again, on pastor's perspective, what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Because rightfully so, a lot of people who are ignorant of it are worried that they may have done it. The only way that you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to refuse the gospel message. It's to die apart from Christ. And he's saying here, what is it that marks these people for destruction? Because when I called, and he used, it's the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work? The Holy Spirit works through the church. Those who are baptized are filled with the Holy Spirit because when I called, you did not answer. You did not answer the call that was given through the gospel that was preached. And it's that, that is going to be, if you will, the dividing line. Then in verses 13 through 16, we see a series of contrasts between the two. Verse 13, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, 
And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because of the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. And so we see those who eat versus those who are hungry. And the idea here is we're going to see this next week in Malachi. It's going to be those whom God has provided for because they have sought after him versus those who are hungry. Now, those who are hungry doesn't mean that they have nothing because we see those in the world who have a lot. But the thing about it is they're always hungry for more. I've seen people who have very little and are very content. God has given them contentment in what he's provided for them. Those who drink and those who are thirsty, to me that just speaks simply of the word of God. Those, because of the word of God, those who rejoice and those who are put to shame. Those who have joy in their heart because of the relationship with the Lord and then those who are sinners and suffer the shame of their sin. Those who sing and those who cry, that would be the results of either rejoicing or shame. Those who are called by a new name are those whose old name became a curse. Now, I have one name as you hear it, and it's Mike, but as God hears it, it's a new name. It's a new name because the old person had died. Now, he knew me by the old name. The old name sounded the same. It was still Mike, but Mike, Mike was a sinner. Mike was lost, and Mike was destined for destruction. But now it's a new name in the ears of God because of the Son, the blood of the Lamb. I'm now saved, and God sees me again, just as if I have never sinned. He sees me in a completely new light. And really that name, it speaks of my nature. I used to have a sinful nature, but now I have the nature of Christ. For those who repent and call upon the name of the Lord, we've got that glorious future. We see this concept in the book of Revelation, and we see what is it that sets the two apart? I'm going to turn, you don't have to turn there because I'm going to kind of read a little rapidly. But in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, we see seven churches that are listed here. These are seven churches that existed when Revelation, the first century, when it was written. These are seven churches that are seven types of churches throughout the church age. And these are seven churches that we could classify churches today under. I like to think that we would be classified either under Smyrna or the church at Philadelphia. So seven churches, seven churches. There's two sheep churches, and then there are five goat churches. And if you're unfamiliar with Matthew chapter 25, a sheep church would be a church that is right in the sight of God. A goat church would be a church that's due for judgment. Now, what's the difference between these churches? We've got a lot of things that are spoken of all of them. Well, as far as the sheep churches, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, what sets Smyrna apart? It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be heard by the second death. And then over in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, the church at Philadelphia, again, another sheep church, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God, we're called Christians, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And so you can relate those things, but the main thing is, these are people that overcame, or churches that had overcome. Now, what's the difference between the ones who have overcame and the ones that didn't? Going back to chapter 2, verse 5, we see this commonality between these goat churches. 
verse 5 of chapter 2, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Verse 16 of chapter 2, speaking of the church at Pergamos, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The church at Thyatira, verse 22, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. Chapter 3, verse 3, Church at Sardis, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. And then the church at Laodicea, verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so we see this concept of repentance and restoration. There were two churches that had overcome. They repented. They're restored. They have a glorious future. There's five churches, though, that still need to repent, or their future is going to be anything else but glorious. Back in chapter 65, so then based upon the perspective of man's past, a promise of our future, we have the reality of restoration. And what we're going to look at in the remainder of this study tonight is a series of six blessings. I'll go through them quickly. But six blessings that await the believer in the age to come so that we can see the magnitude of the restoration, the future that we have. Now, we have a God that tells us beforehand the things that are going to happen so that we understand that he's able to deliver on what he has promised. He's spoken of to Israel that they were going to go into captivity, and it happened. Spoke of Messiah coming, and it happened. And so we look back at the things that were spoken of, and it happened, and that we know that God has his hand upon reality, and he's got his hand upon the pulse of everything that goes on. And so the promises that he has yet to deliver on are future, as we read through the book of Revelation and many other places that speak of the future, just as surely as God was faithful back then and delivered, and he delivered 100% of the time, I still can look forward with a great surety of what he's going to do in the future. And so we have this list of blessings. The first blessing that we have is purity, the purity of eternity. Look at verse 17. For behold, I... Excuse me. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, the majority, it's understand, we need to understand there's a future, and then there's a farther future being spoken of here. There is the time of the millennial age. Just real quickly, we are in the church age right now. There's going to come a time and a moment in the twinkling of an eye that there is the rapture. The church is going to be taken out. There's going to be no born-again believers on this planet. But our witness, the word of God, will continue. It endures forever. And then people will start getting saved again. But right after the rapture, there's a seven-year period called the tribulation. People will get saved. That's God's intent in the tribulation, that people get saved, not that people be tortured. God is squeezing, and it's as if he's squeezing out new believers. But at the end of those seven years is what we call the second coming of Christ. Christ will come and conquer his enemies, and then he will establish the millennial age. It's the age that the Lord will rule with a rod of iron. We, as born-again believers today, will be ruling and reigning with him. 
So any sin that goes on, any crime that is committed, it's dealt with right there at the spot at that moment. Can't go into a whole lot more detail about that. But it's going to be a time of great peace. We're not going to see the things that we see across the landscape of the world today. There will not be any more wars and there won't be crime as we know it today. And then Satan, Satan will have been bound during this time. He's going to be let loose to deceive once again. And he's going to do that. He's going to be gathered together against the Lord, but the Lord's going to overcome him with the word of his mouth. And then at that time, there's going to be the great white throne. Satan will be cast into hell. Satan doesn't know what hell is today. He does not exist in hell. Hell is not populated today. At the end of the tribulation, the false prophet and the Antichrist will be cast into what we call hell. The devil, he's going to be put in this place, this abyss, this jail cell, if you will, for that period of a thousand years until he is let loose. But after that time, when the Lord defeats him, he's going to be cast into hell. And then all of humanity who has died apart from Christ is going to stand before the Lord. It's what's called the great white throne judgment. And he is going to judge them one at a time. And unfortunately, hell was never prepared for mankind. It was prepared for the devil and his demons. But unfortunately, man, because, as we saw earlier, because when I called you, you did not answer, they did not respond favorably to the gospel, then unfortunately, man will be condemned at that time. But now, because, and I believe it's part of the reason of the millennial age, to see even in the best of situations, man still will be deceived by the devil. He'll still go after his flesh, then it's going to be, and we see this in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to turn there because of time, but in Revelation chapter 21, this earth is going to be destroyed. We're told in Second Peter chapter 3 that it's going to melt down to its very elements, not just the earth, but the heavens as well. Not the dwelling place of God heavens, but the universe. So all of this will be destroyed, but there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. And God is going to dwell with his people for all of eternity. But really, what is being spoken of here, it really encompasses both, because during that millennial age, this earth is going to be as if it is new. The landscape is going to be completely changed, as we've seen in past studies. It speaks of it in Revelation. There's going to be an earthquake that the islands that are going to be moved out of place, and the mountains are all going to fall. There's not going to be one mountain in all of the world Can you imagine just what would cause those mountains to fall, the magnitude of the earthquake? This is worldwide event. But there will be one mountain left. It's an exception. That will be Jerusalem. That will be the dwelling place of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that place that we will go to worship him. And so this is part of the glorious future that God has in store for us. The second, the second blessing we are told of will be a supernatural joy, verses 18 through 19. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. But well, we've heard the voice of weeping and crying throughout the ages. Israel's been conquered seemingly more than any other nation has been conquered. It's been restored seemingly only to be conquered again. And when you look at the state of Israel even today, surrounded by those nations that hate them, but after God does this new work, it's going to be filled with joy. Can you imagine living a life that 
only has joy as a part of it. It's part of the blessings that God has for us in a future through his restoration. It's been said that God does not desire for you to be happy. His desire is that your life, in your life, that you would be holy. Happiness is a condition that is predicated upon situations and circumstances. If things are going good, I'm happy. If they're not going good, then I'm sad. Holiness is that which prevails through all situations and circumstances, and in the Christian life will manifest itself in joy. And our joy is to be in the Lord, not in this world or the things of the world, but when our focus is upon the Lord, he blesses us and gives us so much more than we ever can see or perceive. Our existence in heaven will be absolute holiness that will be revealed through our expressive joy. The third blessing will be our reality of longevity. Verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. A long life that points to eternal life. Now, because of death is being spoken of here, we know that this is not what is occurring after the millennial age. So it has to be occurring within the millennial age because people will live, they'll die, they'll marry, they'll give birth, and so on and so forth. Not us. We now have a spiritual body. But there are going to be believers that come through the tribulation. It will be those who we rule and reign over. And so we see this long life that is pointing, is giving us this hint of spiritual uh, of, I'm sorry, of eternal life. Now, a long life in the Bible is seen as a sign of God's divine approval. It's seen when God approves of a person's life, he gives them extended years. It doesn't always play out in reality, but it's just a picture of God's blessing. We see here, for some, it will be blessing, but for other people, it's going to be a curse. And again, if it, sp- if it speaks to eternity, for the born-again believer, eternity, to live for eternity is going to be a blessing, but again, for the unbeliever, for those who, when he called, did not answer, their long life, their eternal life, is going to be a curse. It's going to be spent apart from the presence of God. Fourthly, the fourth blessing speaks of a satisfied life. Verse 21 through 23. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree shall shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble, but they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. I mean, contentment, isn't that what we're seeking after? Why do you go to work? If you're of school age, why do you go to school? Well, so I can get a good job, make good money, and really the result should be that I would find contentment. Well, God has great contentment. You're not going to have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. All these things are provided by the Lord. We can have that contentment today when we understand the goodness of God, but you're going to see the reality of it during this time. You're going to see that, you know, when he says plant and be able to enjoy its food, to be able to go out and work and enjoy the, the, the results of your work, to raise up children, probably the biggest when I had my first child, I had a full head of hair. And after four children, it's been greatly reduced. Raising children is probably the hardest thing that I've done. 
It's probably the hardest thing that I've done. I've got good kids, but it's hard. It, it, it's definitely difficult. There's no doubt about that. You, sp- you lay awake at night a lot thinking about it and sometimes worrying about them. Still do to a, a bit of a degree, and they're all adults with their own kids. But nonetheless, you're going to have contentment in that as well. It said here again, nor bring forth children for trouble, but they shall be descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. You get little pictures of that when your kids do well. You get pictures of that when your grandchildren are born and so on and so forth. This is just going to be complete contentment with the Lord. Fifthly, the fifth blessing is the answer of prayer. In actuality, well, let me read it, verse 24. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. We're still going to pray and have a heart to pray, but it's as if we are mouthing the words, God is already answering the prayer. Now today, I do pray, and God does answer prayer. There's no doubt about it. He doesn't always answer prayer right away. But this is going to be during a time that the results of our prayer are going to be instantaneous. Man's prayer, why is this? Man's prayer will be given in the perfect will of God. We're going to have a greater understanding of what God's desires are. 1 John three fourteen through 15, we know that we have passed from life to death, or from death to life, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer shall ever or have eternal life abiding in him. I don't know why I put that verse there. That wasn't the one I was intending. The, the verse that I was intending is, if we ask anything according to God's will, we have that answer. We have that answer. So what's essential in your prayer life? Is to pray according to God's will. And just think, if you knew what God's will was, just think of the confidence that you would have in your prayer life. Just think of how it would magnify or intensify your prayer life. Just think of how much more often that you would devote your life to prayer. And then the last blessing, and we'll close with this, listed here is because of your repentance and God's restoration, you will have absolute peace. Verse 25. The wolf, now these are natural enemies that now have peace together. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. And the only thing I can think of here, and dust shall be the serpent's food, is that the curse will come to fruition for the devil. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. We're told in John 10.10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus Christ came, the word of God, to deliver the gospel. Why? I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. What we have here in these six blessings is truly a picture of abundant life. These are things that mankind so strives for. There's going to come a day, because of the grace of God, that all of these things are provided for us. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that we have the opportunity, Lord, to truly repent. That we do not have to hide from you, but we understand the love that you have for us. We're able to approach you based upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his atoning death upon the cross, and we can repent of our sins and get right with you and even receive more than that, Lord, that we receive a full restoration. What is it that we're being restored to? We're being restored to that time 
before sin entered into the human condition, just as Abraham had that, I'm sorry, Adam had that privilege to walk with you, Lord, in the coolness of the day in the garden, we so look forward to that opportunity as well. And so, Father, you have given us past prophecies and the fulfillment of them so that we would see the truthfulness of your word. I pray, Father, in these things that we would take possession and, Lord, we would so look forward to that time. And so, Father, we just thank you for this day. I lift up those who have come out tonight, that you would bless them. I pray, Father, that you would go before them in their days. I pray, Lord, based upon your word, especially the word that we looked at tonight, that they would have a renewed confidence, Father, in who you are and the things that you're working in their lives. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness. Pray, Father, that as you go before us, we would rejoice in all that you're doing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? Next Sunday, it'll be next Sunday 